This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, our last pre-Passover release. And we'll probably have a little bit of a break on perhaps right after the holiday itself. And oh, what a time we continue to be in here in Corona land, the time of COVID-19 here in early April 2020 for those listening on or near our release date. Today's episode actually dovetails very much with the theme of the times and also with the two previous interviews that we released. The last two weeks have been about various ethnicities, different kinds of Jews from around the world, Yehuda Kalani from Tanzania, and Sharon Shalom from Ethiopia, so both African Jews currently in Israel, two amazing people. Today we switch to a different part of the world and introduce Yosef Mendelevich. Yosef is one of the great prisoners of Zion of the 1970s and has been one of the major players in the worldwide Russian Jewry movement, both in terms of helping them gain their freedom and then helping them integrate and become educated as Jews in the decades since. And of course, the theme connecting to Passover and to the coronavirus is hard to ignore and I'm not going to pretend it was unintentional my timing of release we find ourselves in some sort of a prison thankfully not for most people the type of prison that the gulag was in Soviet Russia but a prison nonetheless and it's something that we all yearn to be released from to reconnect with our friends and family in person all over. And obviously we're about to celebrate Passover. For those listening a little bit afterwards may have already celebrated. But of course, Passover, Pesach is all about that liberation from slavery to freedom. Not only the historical exodus, but the renewed sense of freedom that we can find each and every year from our own demons from our own struggles and travails, from that which holds us back from reaching our potential, both individually and nationally as a Jewish people. Yosef Mendelevich, again, a prisoner of Zion, truly represents this unbreakable spirit, which is the title of his book, in fact. The unbreakable spirit, the eternality of the Jewish soul, And much like he was able to transcend his circumstances, we too in quarantine can and will do the same and we will celebrate a Pesach like never before. Physically, of course, but hopefully spiritually as well in terms of the immediacy and the power of our celebration. A reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know spelled out fully 
on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Remember to subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, any podcast application. Please spread the word. Let your friends know how to subscribe as well. Comments and suggestions. Jews You Should Know at gmail.com and now to our conversation with longtime prisoner of Zion author educator incredible human being Yosef Mendelevich we are here with famous refusenik and great advocate for Russian Jewry Yosef Mendelevich, how are you, Yosef? I am fine, Baruch Hashem. Wonderful to hear, and thank you so much for joining us. I had the pleasure of hearing you speak a number of years ago, not so long ago, actually, uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I live. I was able to purchase your book at that time and hear the story. But for our audience today, tell us a little bit about where, in particular, in the former Soviet Union, you were raised, and a little bit about your upbringing. To begin with, uh, I'm not a refusenik. I'm a prisoner of Zion. It makes a difference. Refusenik people that uh, got refused under their uh, request to leave Soviet Russia, prisoner of Zion, were arrested for that. So it makes a difference. And then uh, I'm from Latvia. Latvia is nowadays independent Baltic state as it used to be before the Second World War. And then it was uh, divided, as you know, there was a treaty between Hitler and Stalin to divide Europe. And uh, on the treaty, Latvia became a part of Soviet Union. So being a Latvian Jew, I'm altogether a Russian Jew, for I speak both languages, Latvian and Russian, and some English and some Hebrew. Anyway, it's my background. I was born um, after the war, the Holocaust, in Soviet Union. And I got um, a regular uh, upbringing, education, like a, re- a regular uh, Soviet uh, student. We were called uh, the, so- the small soldiers of Stalin. I was uh, later, I started studying in a high school a bit later after he passed away on Purim. But it's the kind of education. You sit this way like a soldier and you obey. What kind of education? They educate you to obey and not to answer questions. And did you actually buy into what you were being taught there? Or was it more of just conforming to the society you were a part of? You know, the whole structure, the whole system of education was built in the way to make you a model Soviet citizen, to modify not to quest question, you know, and you follow. You're like, you are not yourself. You are part of a mainstream of thousands and thousands of students, and you are like a part of it. So it uh, takes an effort to start thinking independently, which happened with me. But uh, the majority, as you know, followed, you know, for, um, as to say, the majority of uh, human beings are not uh, thinking too much. You're just going uh, the general way. So it's a miracle that uh, I don't know how. I believe because of my DNA. 
not specifically Jewish, for there were other Jews that cooperated with the Soviets and at least obeyed. For some reason, my DNA told me not to obey. That's my background. Getting a regular Russian education without almost no Jewish background, and all of a sudden, it's me, Rabbi Yosef Mendelevich. It's a miracle. <laughs> so, how old were you when you started to question? I wouldn't say that I would set a question, why and how. It was like a development, step-by-step -step development. And I assume it was around um, my age of 15 or 16, like a teenager, a regular teenager. And then uh, there were some other reasons that um, made me to think again. For uh, previously, when I was a uh, child of 10, my father was arrested by the Soviets on an economical basis. It was a trumped up uh, uh, accusation, nothing, not, nothing true. But the moment you know, you understood that um, the authorities don't like you too much, you know, you, don't, you yourself don't like them as well, you know. <laughs> so it's good for a beginning just to know that uh, they would declare the Soviets that they love people, you know, and uh, doing everything for uh, people uh, uh, like prosperity, but you study yourselves that it's not true at all, you know. Just stop trusting the authorities and whatever they say. How long was your father in prison? Oh, for, uh, for a sh very short time, some uh, in a year and a half. But it uh, broke the family. For my mother was uh, like a communist believer, and she couldn't understand how this. Uh, regime can arrest an innocent man, you know. So he got uh, like um, ill from that and passed away when I, I was a child. So it was, uh, you know, a good beginning, so-called good beginning, you know, to start thinking differently from others, for you understand that you are not be treating as a <laughs> good Soviet citizen. Somehow it's, you are wrong, you are not a, a good Soviet citizen. What did it do to your mother's connection to communism when your father was in prison? Did it change her beliefs? I believe so. As a matter of fact, my mother and my father being brought up in Latvia got a religious background that time in the 30s. But they looked to solve everybody's problem. Like uh, um, you, you, you are a candidate from Democrats uh, Benny Sanders, uh, you know, Barry Sanders, that says that so socialism will solve everything. Uh, so they trusted that it's good, you know, it's uh, for the rabbis, you know, uh, now teaching and teaching and teaching, nothing uh, really comes out good from, from their teachings. And now there is a whole state, Soviet Union, that uh, make, make uh, the change, the big change that will finally be good for everybody, for uh, humanity. So they joined it, you know, for whatever the Soviets would declare was in Torah, you know, it was their declarations. In, uh, as a matter of fact, it was not uh, true. As uh, almost every authority, you know, declares something one and is doing uh, altogether differently. So anyway, um, before the war, uh, they, they trusted the Soviets that it's good that they that the Soviet Union is building a paradise. And they hoped to get there, you know, to be part of something new, not the regular way of, um, you know, life 
specifically after the first world war it was bad and then finally when 1940 they became a part of soviet union then they discovered the truth but still you know it's hard for people to admit that they were wrong you know so it took a while they were somehow disillusioned but not i would believe not a telling to themselves wow we made a major mistake what's you know it, it, it takes a courage for a people for a person to admit that he is wrong so uh, it was uh, a final uh, understanding in 1957 when uh, my father was arrested but then you know you have another problem you lost your belief in whatever you believed before what you are what will come as an exchange for that you know you can say everybody's lying you know you cannot trust to anybody the life is bad you know it's not for us and you pass away it was happened with my my mother if somebody could uh, tell her come back become a, a religious jew you know it's a solution but nobody could tell her that time for the society was not religious, it was anti-religious in the Soviet Union. All the rabbis were massacred during the Holocaust. In Latvia, heavily, the population mostly was killed under the Holocaust. No rabbis left. And then there was no the Soviet approach to give the rabbi a position, you know, to deal with people. So you, all of a sudden, you know, you, like my mother, you found yourself in a vacuum. Nobody can help you. You know, imagine her with three small children, the father arrested, there is no incomes. Some Jews would come and give some small money, but you can do it, you know. It's really, it was a, really a disaster. So what did you start doing at 15, 16? I simply went um, to work in a factory to support my father after he was released. Uh, his um, house was ruined. He got a stroke. He couldn't work. So I worked as a factory. And uh, what's important, when I'm mentioning it again, 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 we would go in the evening to study in um, high school for working youth. And then when I arrived to this specific uh, high school in Latvia, Riga, the capital of Latvia is Riga, it turned out that in this specific high school, there are a lot of Jews. You imagine Riga, uh, had that time almost uh, a million of residents, and there were some 30,000 Jews, but it was, it was not com a community. We had no synagogues, we were dispersed, you know, never meet each other. And then all of a sudden, I met in the high school a lot of uh, Jewish boys, and how it started. As we say, you know, in uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, something bad can be changed and became good. So it's not my, like, my evil that uh, my father was arrested. But it uh, turned out that uh, finally it served me, like to push me to a certain direction, meeting Jews. And when you meet uh, Jewish boys, some of them, I believe, were already under uh, Zionist or nationalist influence, and they influenced us. So it's how it started. Where were people getting their nationalist information from? like the people that you met, where was that coming from? There are two uh, sources for that. To begin with, again, Latvia was a, a democratic state before the war. 
So some of the parents of these specific uh, uh, guys that I met are were good educated, like uh, uh, as good as Jews, and never stopped it. Uh, unlike my parents, they never trusted communism and continued to be uh, good Jews. So it's one source. And the second source was that um, after di uh, Stalin died in 1953, and uh, there was like um, a change in, in rulership. New people come, and uh, they released prisoners. Stalin had in, uh, in Gulag some maybe 3 million of prisoners, mostly of them innocent. So the new wave of uh, Russian uh, leadership decided to make it softer than uh, during the Stalin, and they released a lot of people. Some of them were Jewish, and some of them being themselves believer communists coming to this high school of Gulag, changed their minds and became Zionists. And then being released, still young people like of age 30, 40, they come back with the decision to help Amish Royal in, uh, in Russia, to stop assimilation, to um, try to re-educate uh, the young Jews. And it's how it happens that I, you know, I, by, by miracle, I got exposed to these kind of people. So what was some of the original inspirations that you had? What was starting to move you and touch you? As a matter of fact, uh, friends in a, in a high school would uh, bring uh, some Jewish literature, illegal, printed illegal in Soviet Russia, that had, uh, you know, Jewish topics. And it was uh, Jewish history and analyzing the real situation of the Jews in Soviet Union. And I felt it's okay with me. I love this kind of information. It's like I looked for it. It was like inside of me, I did understand it. But sometimes you need to formulate it. And I got it like uh, imprinted that it's it, you know, that the Soviet power is wrong. And we have, they try to assimilate us. And uh, to be a Jew, Jew is a privilege is a benefit, and I would like to be a real Jew, to come back to my roots, to learn, and I enjoyed whatever I could uh, learn from Jewish history and uh, Jewish ethics or whatever. I enjoyed it. I felt, I felt it's mine, not the Soviet propaganda. It's really mine. So I would tell that my beginning was from love, not uh, hating somebody. Just I found something that pleased me very much. I enjoyed it. You know, it's how it started. What did you enjoy? Enjoy to be Jewish, to learn more of my nation. For I am a Jew, you know, it fits me. Like you are giving somebody food that it is not eatable for him. And finally he's getting something that is eatable and tasty. It's what's happened to me. I got, I got food of a Jewish uh, philosophy, uh, Jewish history that I liked very much. I ate it and ate it. And finally I uh, finished to be a believer Jew. Do you remember any ideas or experiences that helped you crystallize your desire to really be a part of this, to go forward? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, it's a long story to tell. And uh, it was a step-by-step -step development. So I cannot tell all the steps of uh, me becoming a believer Jew. But uh, normally I mention the experience of uh, rebuilding of a site of Holocaust. Next uh, to Riga, they had a terrible place 
where some tens of thousands of Jews were massacred during, uh, in the beginning of the war in 1941. And uh, the Soviets, the authorities, would take care of the place. It was in the forest. Nobody was aware until, again, the new generation of prisoners of Zion released from Gulag of Stalin discovered the place, and they decided they will invite Jewish youth to rebuild and reconstruct the site in this way to meet us, like young people, boys and girls, and in this way to prevent uh, assimilation, like to use the massacre and the, the terrible site, not only to rebuild it, but just to, you know, to build a group. And it happened, you know. They came there, it was in the beginning of the 60s. I was the first that came there. The place is uh, nowadays very known, it's called Rumbola. That um, Erev Hanukkah, 1941, some 25,000 Jews there were massacred, and the Germans would uh, bring more and more until it come maybe up to 100,000 people. The whole area in the forest, whatever, was full with it. So certainly, you know, coming there and digging and building with other Jewish boys, it worked in uh, two directions, to reconstruct and uh, to make friends. So just there on uh, this uh, site, I decided to uh, start running an underground Jewish organization of students. I was at the time a student in university to prevent assimilation, to fight for uh, freedom of a Jew to immigrate from Soviet Union. So it's a direct outcome. You know, they have like a Yom HaShoah in Israel, and no, normally the leftists and the liberals say, why it happened, you know? Nobody can explain, you know, and believe that it's wrong to explain why it happened. It uh, was like a hegemon of the God. But what I can say, from my experience, I am the outcome. I am a child of the people that were killed. From there on the graves, I understood the meaning and the value of being a Jew. And not only being a Jew, but struggling and fighting to prevent another massacre. For me, it meant to come back to the roots and go back to my homeland. So what did you actually start to do at that point? You were a young person. Were you... Just learning? Were you engaged in activism? What practically did you begin doing? Altogether, everything. To begin with, I, it was not me alone. As I mentioned, I met friends on this site and we had a group. So for the beginning, we start studying and learning ourselves for we were ignorant altogether. And the moment we got some information, and I studied by myself Hebrew, for I didn't know Yiddish. And Yiddish in Lita, Latvia is very rich with Hebrew, like up to 30%. So I picked up Hebrew and I started uh, Hebrew classes with uh, boys and girls that I would met there in this specific place or in uh, synagogue. So we started uh, running groups and then later on we connected with other groups. It turned out that not only in Riga, but as well in Moscow, Leningrad, in Kiev, Kharkov, and different places, there are groups like ours. So finally, in 1968, we established a national educational system coordinating 
our uh, deeds. For you know, as an educator, you need printed materials. And by the way, you need budgets, money. So it's a task, you know. And then we needed some technique to uh, multiply, to print whatever we had. And it, it went on. So it was very successful. I believe um, that that time uh, we embraced thousands and thousands of, um, of uh, Jews in the underground groups that studied. And I myself, at age 20, that time was appointed to be an editor of underground Jewish bulletin. Would involve not only a, like an, a regular editor to collect materials or print physically, uh, technically, you have to find a way to print it and to send uh, to different places. So it was a real involvement in real depths of the struggle for survival of Jewish nation. Was that the main way you communicated? Was through the underground paper? Yeah, sure. For people would come from different places to get. They are copies, you know, and it's how we established this coordination committee. For we decided, and again, according to uh, the clever advice of a former prisoner of Zion, that served in a Stalin Gulag, never establish a real organization, just coordinate, which means really organization, you know, but never call it organization. It's like a coordination. We meet, we discuss our problem, make uh, some decisions. If somebody has say, textbooks in Hebrew, we have to move it to another place. If somebody has a, like a printing machines, that time they were, the, the major technique was to print, to print in Riga. So we, we, we shall print for somebody and move it to Moscow. And how did you avoid getting caught by the authorities at that time? Somehow, I believe that uh, our organization uh, was already infiltrated by uh, KGB agents. For being an open education system, you're not uh, going to, ch- to check everybody is he a KGB agent or is not. You know, you're simply glad to everybody that is coming to learn. So they did know why they wouldn't arrest us. I believe, remember, it was a different time. It was not already Stalin time. The Soviets start understanding that they depend on the West. They cannot simply persecute people for studying Hebrew. It's uh, why they collected information. And later on, I saw an, like a report on a session of Politburo. Politburo at the time was the leading group of uh, the, the, the Communist Party in Kremlin. And there was a, like a report of the head of KGB telling France, we have a problem. We have information that the Jewish use is becoming nationalistic. And we can't explain how it happened. They, everybody got our Russian education. Why it happened that uh, they have groups and ma- multiply, like they felt bad about that. They looked for a way to, you know, to disperse us, to eliminate our Jewish education. But we already, as I told, uh, they were exposed to Western public opinion and they hesitated. So what did you start doing in your 20s? Because eventually you did get caught, as I understand. So what led to that happening? It was uh, like a different project of our organization. My feeling and that of my friends was that simply in uh, having the small classes, we cannot save nobody. For again, 
that time we had uh, around 3 million of Jews there. In eh? our uh, movement, in like uh, educational system, we can get some thousand, two thousand. It was not enough. So it was obvious to me and some of my friends that the only way to save our people is to open the gates of Soviet Russia for freedom of the immigration. And as far as it was impossible, it was altogether illegal. We decided to hijack a Russian airplane to dramatize our situation that people in the free world would understand that not like El Wiesel, Allah uh, Shalom would uh, say that we are silent jewelry. We were a spoken jewelry. Young people, you know, not being afraid of anything. So we decided to declare we are alive. I'm Israel High and happy, hoping that uh, you people in the West will help us. So together we shall break through the Iron Curtain, which happened. Did you expect to actually be able to steal a plane? Or did you anticipate this would be more of a publicity move to call attention to your cause? Okay, we had like a beautiful scheme to hijack a small airplane, having only Jewish passengers on the board. As I have to mention that flights inside Soviet Russia were legal, you know. Russia is twice as big as America, so normally there are flights inside, and you can, even that time, you can buy uh, tickets and go. So our organization, members of our group, bought all the tickets on a small airplane with only 12 passengers, and we had our Jewish pilot, Mr. Dimshitz, Mader Dimshitz, that was um, formerly a pilot in uh, Russian Air Forces, so we could uh, do it easily. And then... Again, the main reason for me, at least, to take part in this plot was to publicize our fight and to dramatize it, to show to everybody that people are going to die for freedom. And we believe that it will uh, help us. So finally, also we were arrested on the spot in the airport. Certainly, as I mentioned, uh, we were heavily infiltrated by the secret services not this small group, but we were part of a bigger educational movement. And somehow, doesn't matter how they got to to know about our preparation. And they felt that it's um, like serving their purposes. For they figured that um, arresting us, a teacher in uh, Hebrew and Jewish uh, tradition, they can uh, declare that all groups of this kind are in fact uh, terrorists, groups that try terrorists. And it happened, you know, we were arrested and tens and tens of people were arrested and questioned. And it was a major destruction of our educational movement. So the Soviets felt that uh, they did it. Uh, They crushed our movement, but only for a while. In the end, after um, the interrogation finished like a half a year ago, there were 36 uh, dossier folio of our interrogations. And the last page of the volume 66 was written. It was like a declaration of KGB. They would declare that under this specific investigation, they questioned some thousand people that were connected to this Jewish movement. And they mentioned these thousand people are connected with much more thousands of people. It's not in our, our power 
to question everybody. So when I saw the, as we say in Yiddish, the untersteshure, the, the bottom line, I understood we won it. They understood that it was not a small group of terrorists, but a broad national movement that they can do anything. Their time, it was all the, the beginning of the 80s, they couldn't suppress us. They had to admit that really there is a trend, there is a thousands and thousands of Jews that are willing so, uh, to leave Soviet Russia, and also they um, passed uh, uh, very harsh verdicts to us. In the same time, they decided to open the gates. So the first year I served in a prison, some 15,000, one five thousand Jews got permission to leave, which was unprecedented. For previously, you can Google it. Some maybe hundreds of them of Jews would be permitted to leave Soviet Russia. And now it was 15,000. Next year, it was 30,000. A year later, 35,000. So the immigration started. So being there in um, a Russian concentration camp, and getting a penalty of 12 years of compulsory labor in this concentration camp, I told to myself and to the God that if me being in prison can bring freedom to other Jews, I am ready to stay as much as needed. For, you know, it's the biggest mitzvah of Pidyon Shvuim. So sometimes you have to pay with money and sometimes with your life. But a life of one man has uh, incomparable to the freedom of hundreds and thousands of Jews. So it was really a privilege to serve my nation in this way. How did you feel during the time that you were in captivity? What was your state of mind? To begin with, I understood that it is our victory. Like if uh, a soldier tried to attack the enemy and was killed, but his troop went forward, it's a victory, right? And then uh, we had uh, Jewish friends in every camp. So the moment we come there after the trial, we established our underground Jewish organization to educate Jews. <laughs> I became again a teacher in, in Hebrew, in Jewish tradition, and I took care to have a Shabbos and Jewish holidays. So I was busy all the time, you know. If you don't feel that it is a mistake, and if you understand that every Jew in every place has a position, as we say in Hebrew, So I try to be myself, a human being, a Jew in every place, and a fighter. So it was like a, a privilege, a benefit to be in, in a camp. For then, I understood that being there and keeping mitzvahs in a gulag, I set an example to other Jews, to refuseniks, was the real approach to our problems. It's how later on in the 70s, the Balchuva movement started in Moscow and Leningrad. People start not only being refuseniks. Refuseniks mean you apply, you applied for a permission to leave, you're being refused, so you have to survive and so on. No, just the opposite. They became Balchuva, they start building underground groups to learn Torah and later on Gemara, etc. So it was a real revival, like out from destruction. It's what the KGB hoped that arrest, arresting us, they will destruct the national movement. It uh, turned to be our survival. As always, as we know, with the uh, Jewish nation. And from one hand, you, you have a Hurban, 
of destruction of the temple. From another hand, you have a revival, you have a Rashi and Toysvus and whatever, else flourishing is the special nature of our Israel. You can never ruin us. Did you have any contact in the West? Did you know at all what was going on with the free Soviet Jewry movement and things like that that were taking place at the time? See, we got some kind of information for we had some meetings with our relatives, not uh, me specifically, but other uh, fellow prisoner Jewish uh, got kind of information. But to um, tell you something interesting, after me being in the prison for seven years, it was already 1977, Nathan Sharansky was sentenced and he was moved after the trial to my prison, so-called my prison. <laughs> I was the, and then we could uh, communicate through the pipes, you know, through the toilet. Like uh, the basin of toilet is the beginning of uh, somebody's, uh, you know, canalization system, so you can talk. And I called him, he come up to the telephone and asked him, Nathan, at the time he was Anatoly, Tolik, What's happening in the world? Do people support our struggle? And then he was really knowledgeable for 1977, 1978. It was really a peak of all the movements, of all the pressure of the release. So he told me the whole story. I understood after seven years that what we expected happened and it works. How long did you have to stay in prison? The entire 12 years? I stayed... um, 11 years in prison. It's incredible because it seems like it didn't break you even through 11 years of imprisonment. Why should they break me, you know? I am a winner. I and my friends won the battle. So, you know, why should they break us? So to be in prison, like, it's like a, maybe worse condition, you know, food or whatever. But um, we are soldiers. We are soldiers of army soil, so it doesn't matter for us. When you succeed, and we achieved the breakthrough that the um, Iron Curtain got broken and uh, thousands and thousands of Jews started living, became coming back to the roots. Why should they break? They got broken. As you know, later on, they broke down. They got broken, not us. How did you observe mitzvot in prison? It was an, uh, like an effort to keep mitzvahs. Not really to observe, but uh, for some things were impossible. Like we had not film, then we couldn't uh, really eat kosher food. The ones n- nobody would. Uh, but we, like Hofitzheim, uh, in his uh, famous uh, uh, letter to uh, Russian soldiers, to try to avoid eating treif, and it is what we tried. Just to mention, it was a like a political prisoner prison for. Uh, it was called the. Uh, the prison for most dangerous political prisoners. I was uh, very dangerous to, to them. And there <laughs> were others. Yeah. I am dangerous, really, you know. The moment you are, like have an open brain, you are dangerous. Anyway, and there were other people, not specifically Jews, of our approach, people that fought against the Soviet regime, and specifically for the independence of uh, their national republics, like Ukrainian, Louisiana, etc. We got a lot of their support. It was very important. For the, with their help and support, it was easier to keep mitzvahs. 
For example, um, on Shabbos, we had to report that we produced whatever we needed. You know, every day they check if you produce 100%. If you don't produce it, you will be punished. So we had an Ukrainian boy, a nationalist, that was in charge of reporting to the authorities. And they would report that Mendelevich produced 100% on Shabbos, which I wouldn't do it. So in Sotera, a lot of, you know, small stories. Come to listen to my um, lectures, I will tell you much more. In our interview, I could uh, bring you more broad concept, what it was about. So how did you finally get out? I don't know. It's them, the Soviets. But I was uh, told um, a funny story, a good story, by a former refusenik, Itzhak Kogan. He is known as a, a tzaddik from Leningrad. Itzhak Kogan was a tzaddik from Leningrad being himself an engineer in nuclear submarines, all of a sudden he became a refusenik and believer, and then he discovered that he has roots in Chabad, <laughs> and he became a Chabadnik, one of the uh, leaders of a new generation of people in Chabad. And then it happened that in the end of 11 years of imprisonment, the authorities of the prison found that I have some illegal for him, like Humish and Sidor and some other, and they confiscated. So it's a long story to tell, but I decided I will fire them, and I declared a prolonged hunger strike, trying to pass um, the knowledge of my hunger strike for good reason, you know, protesting of taking uh, our sacred books to UN uh, human rights mission. So it, it, it took time. And uh, finally, after two months of the hunger strike, the authorities of the prison got it, and uh, they start negotiating, you know, to give me some books back if I stop uh, the hunger strike. It happened. It turned out later, and it is what I heard from uh, Itzhak Kogan, that exactly that time, there was a shaliach of Chabad. They came to see Itzhak Kogan, and he was astonished with whatever uh, they are doing. And the shaliach told, I'll come back to the Rebbe and tell, uh, you know, whatever you are doing, he will bless you. And then Yitzchak told, never bless me. Say, the Rebbe, he has to help Yosef Mendelevich out of the prison. And it happened. In a month, I was out of the prison. So it, specifically, I believe it was uh, Edgar Brofman, at the time uh, the um, president of uh, World Jewish Congress, that I believe that Rebbe contacted and asked to make a major effort of my release, and it worked. Edgar Brofman uh, discussed my release with, uh, that time there was an ambassador, ambassador of uh, Soviet Union in the um, United States, the Brainian. Some people uh, would ask me <laughs> how much uh, <laughs> bottles of Seagram <laughs> Brofman gave. <laughs> I don't know, but it happened, you know. All of a sudden, uh, like a month after my, uh, the, I finished my hunger strike, I was taken immediately from Siberia by an airplane to Moscow, and then they sent me away, told me, you don't deserve anymore to be considered a Soviet citizen. It took uh, 11 years for them <laughs> to understand that I don't fit <laughs> the criteria of a Soviet citizen. You went straight to Israel then? It was uh, like 
not my decision, directly from their prison. I was escorted in a big black car, escorted by Russian police to the airport, and they threw me away. That's how in the a, in a morning I was a prisoner, and uh, in the evening I was ordered in Israel. So I wouldn't say that then I became a free man, as you understand, being in prison, I was free myself anyway. I'm curious, what came of your siblings who are around your age? What happened with them? To begin with, I had the two sisters. And uh, again, after they, uh, the authorities, immediately after our release, understood how broad our movement was, they decided to send everybody away. And it's how my sisters were or the, the first one once they got permission to leave and come to Israel in 1971. My mother passed away, as I mentioned, when I, my father was arrested and I was a child. And then uh, they insisted my father uh, would leave as well. Uh, but my father told I will never leave until you release Yosef from the prison. He stayed there for a more time, became himself a leader of a Jewish movement in Latvia. They hated him. Uh, but he can do anything, for he got a good education being an underground communist movement, so he didn't know how to do that. Finally, he got a stroke and passed away some uh, three years before I was released. So it sounds like when you got to Israel, you already had family, sister waiting for you there. Yeah, true, but uh, mostly my aim was uh, to study in yeshiva. So um, the next day, I come to uh, Israel. In fact, I stayed uh, for the beginning with uh, one of my sisters, Rivka, Drury, in Alon Shvut. And then I studied with uh, Rav Lichtenstein. Uh, and then I moved uh, to Merkaz Arab Yeshiva. And then I studied uh, for a rabbinical degree in artificial uh, koilil, in Baiswagan. So I, I moved from one place to another, accomplished my studies, and uh, immediately after my, re uh, my release, I got married. Did you marry another prisoner of Zion? Who did you find to marry? It happened that at uh, that time, they had at uh, Merkaz Arab Yeshiva uh, a girls' organization, uh, so called uh, Shomer Achia Nochi. I am uh, my brother keeper like uh, contrary to what uh, Cain told, that I am not a keeper. And mostly it was run by Avital Sharansky to uh, help uh, Anatoly out from the prison. And uh, there were girls helping her in whatever she did. So when I was released, she was aware that for a time I spent uh, time with Anatoly in the prison and I can tell more about his conditions. So she sent uh, one of the girls that worked there to um, interview me and to prepare me to uh, the press conference. So imagine what happened. You married the girl. Yeah. <laughs> also, she was not Russian. He was from Paris, from France. But, you know, we have a common language, Hebrew. Later, she admitted that I had a better command in Hebrew than her. You know, it is what I <laughs> advise uh, Russian boys, if you would like to marry a Jewish girl in Israel, <laughs> learn Hebrew, you know, for otherwise 
how can you date? I could date right away, you know. I have the language and I had a certain, uh, whatever I, I did know, I remembered a lot of stories. I will um, tell another funny story. When um, stepping down from the air, airplanes that arrived to Israel, that time I was a celebrity, a lot of correspondents in uh, Ben Gurion Airport come to the airport to interview me. And one of them asked me, what a vision of uh, Israel do you have? And imagine it was in the Porsche of, of the week of Itro. I thought, Mamlechet Kohanim, Vigoy Kadosh. Unbelievable, you know, a prisoner released from a Gulag prison have in his heart the vision of Amish Royal and can bring it in Hebrew exactly how it's being told. So imagine the journalist closed the camera and told another fanatic arrived. <laughs> what have you done in Israel in the last number of years? What have you dedicated yourself to since coming out from behind the Iron Curtain and settling in the Holy Land? To begin with, uh, Torah education. I teach in uh, Mahod Meir, Yeshiva, and I have hundreds and hundreds of uh, students for, uh, for the time. And then with Anatoly Sharansky, we established an organization to help uh, newcomers to get uh, uh, adjusted to Israeli life uh, for many years. And then in Torah College, there was a Torah College branch in uh, Jerusalem, and uh, Professor Lander, Shalom, permitted to start a special Russian department in Tura College for absorption. So we absorbed uh, people with uh, university degrees, and I was the head of the project, so I was very big, busy for a long time. And then, you know, I have to admit, the life is not you are all the time you are riding on a white horse. Sometimes you are not riding, you know. It happens, you know. So I, I wouldn't tell that my life is 100% success. It's uh, all the time the problems with educating the children and getting parnose and uh, whatever, you know. It's the life, you know. But uh, never would I forget that the my main aim is uh, to save my nation and to uh, bring uh, closer the time of Mashiach. I'm not a Mashiachist. But I believe it depends on us. He can come now. Are you still in touch with Sharansky and any of the other major players from that time? What's your current relationship with them and with him specifically? You see, we are somehow friendly. Uh, for example, um, at that time he was the chairman of a Jewish agency. I could uh, call uh, his secretary. And we could arrange a meeting in a Jewish agency <laughs> discussing uh, small problems, not big ones. And the same is Edelstein. For um, Sharansky would admit that he is like an outspring of our activities, like my child, for we educated the second generation of activists what to do. Also, we are the same age. And then Edelstein would say, you know, I'm like a grandchild. For, uh, I got educate, education from Sharansky and started when Sharansky was arrested. So three generations, also more or less the same age. But, you know, it's easier to call a Jewish agency. Now uh, Sharansky has his office. Even easier to get there. 
you can get uh, that easy to understand he is a very high person. Also, he is a grandchild, but it happened, you know, that the grandchild are better than uh, the Zaydis. Does it frustrate you that some of the leaders of the movement don't share your religious convictions? I know some of them are traditional, some of them are more observant, less observant, more passionate, less passionate about the Jewish religious angle for Russian Jews. Does that ever bother you? Sharansky is on Shabbos, and the same with Elstein. But uh, to take, uh, to tell generally, you know, to share, uh, to share my outlooks means to be more energetic, to make a major uh, effort to uh, at least to educate the Russian jury, the followers of Lieberman. It really frustrates yeah. me for to do that. You know, we had never, never got the tools to do that, and I openly talked and discussed it with people I wouldn't mention their name, no help. And being there in the bottom, I was in the bottom. I mean, I can get a budget of $1,000, you know, but I can't establish yeshiva. I can't start, and not certainly not a broader educational movement as we had uh, there in Soviet Russia. It really frustrates me. And there is, a, for example, a famous um, teacher, Eliyahu Esses, that was really the father of uh, the generation of Gemara uh, learning in, in Moscow. When he arrived to uh, Israel, and if I being uh, the prime minister or somebody, I would tell, okay, you know, you run now the whole issue of uh, education of, of Russian Jews. Nothing that happened. He's sitting in his place. He has like a, a site, website or whatever. He had... Uh, could do much more. And not only him, there is a famous Rabbi Zeb Meshkov, and a lot of people, you know, that uh, hardly struggle for uh, their survival, financially and educationally. It's ironic and sad that some of these people were able to do more in communist Russia than in the Jewish state. 100%. They could, and they could uh, do, and they still can do in uh, Israel but they, have, they don't belong uh, to the parties. And you don't belong, and it doesn't matter that you are a celebrity or you are a celebrity, you can do anything. It's frustrates. So in starting to close, what would you say your dream is today for Russian Jewry? What's the prognosis? What can still be done? What would you like to see happen with that large and critical population. To begin with, Russian Jews that arrived to um, Israel, thousands and thousands of them became uh, believers. Shomer Shabbos, we have Raboim, young Raboim that studied in Israel and speak uh, Russian language. So I can't tell that nothing happened. And then, you know, nowadays, uh, the Russian Jewry became a part of Israeli Jewry. You can't uh, consider that something separate. For if a Jew from Russia settles in Bnei Brak, you have almost 99% that he will become a believer. Or if he is, comes to a certain settlement in Judea, certainly he will become uh, a believer. But uh, if he comes to Tel Aviv or Herzliya, so it's what happens. So again, I underline certainly much more 
could be done and should be done for Soviet Jewry for they are brainwashed differently from many Jews worldwide. But being in Israel, they are part of Israel culture. It's uh, the problem of Israelis in general. The general approach of Israelis to Emune, to Torah, will influence uh, finally in the long run as well the Russian Jews. So is there anything that can be done? What I can do is, uh, you know, I go around <laughs> and uh, I teach and I have my Facebook and, uh, you know, whatever. I don't know. I, I have a plan. I have a scheme what to do. But it is, uh, in, you know, is not helpful, you know. The moment you became, if I could become a part of Likud movement or maybe uh, Gimel or whatever, maybe I, I could have more power. But, you know, it's a story of, I believe in Korea, there was a dragon, was dangerous, and nobody can uh, withstand him. And finally, there was a man that withstand the, the, the dragon. Why? He became himself a dragon. Mm, that is profound. Well, as I know, you do speak all over. I mentioned at the beginning, I heard you speak live. And I have your book. Tell us a little bit about how that book came about and what your goal has been with it. My book is uh, called Unbroken Spirit in uh, English. It's translation, as a matter of fact, from Hebrew and from Russian. It happened not that far away, like in uh, the beginning of 2012, a certain person from Chicago, Pamela Cohen, that used to be a national president of Union Council for Soviet Jewry, called me up and told me, Yosef, why wouldn't you publish your book in English? So I told, you know, it's very expensive. I can do it. So she took up the challenge, collected some $30,000 and published it in Hebrew. And he told me, there are two reasons why I decided to publish the book. It is not me. She published, and the friends in Chicago decided to publish. Two reasons. For the beginning, is you true to your book. Somebody can tell about his uh, past, dreaming and doing, and then coming to uh, the free world, altogether different, you know. So it doesn't mean you are the same. You dream to become a leader, became a rabbi, to influence other people, you continue to do that. It's why we, we can uh, publish your book. And then she told me, see, we American Jews tried to save Russian Jewry. Now I hope with your book, we shall help to save American Jewry. Well, given the work that I do, I can assure you that we certainly need it. Yosef Mendelevich, Unbroken Spirit is the book. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank God. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally... 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.